Good morning. This morning we are reading from Genesis chapter 24, verses 62 to 67. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. Uh, But I promise you it won't be the longest sermon in the series. I really want to focus on one phrase. I want to focus on how the account of Isaac meeting Rebekah and these two people coming together, uh, which is really what all of Genesis chapter 24 uh, recounts. I want to just focus on the last sentence, the last phrase, how the story ends. In verse 67, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. If you do the math, if you read a few chapters before this and a few chapters after, you you figure out that Isaac was 37 years old when his mother Sarah died. He's 40 years old now when he meets and marries Rebecca. So Isaac had been grieving for three years. Traditional cultures, they allow time for people to grieve. Have you noticed this? Have you read it in books or seen it in movies? Traditional cultures give you at least a month, uh, if not much longer than that, to formally and to publicly grieve. And and the community knows, and your friends and your relatives and uh, those around you know that you're in a a state of mourning. You're grieving. Our culture gives you like a week. Is that about right? You, You have about a week from a tragic loss to get over it, to get back to work, to go back to paying your bills, and, and frankly, for, for, a, for a, a society like ours, an advanced, uh, scientifically, medically advanced society that loves to avoid pain and, and avoid uh, death and avoid grief, uh, people want you to get over it. People want you to get over it so that when they see you coming, they don't have to worry about what you might say or what you might... Because people don't necessarily know what to say to you when you're struggling, when you're in pain when you're grieving. So it'd be great if you could just move on. It's been a week. We've prayed with you. We've cried with you. We've sent flowers. Now, can we all please get back to our lives? Um, But you know, you know, even if you're not expected to grieve for a long time in our cultural context, you know that the grief stays with you, right? If you've lost somebody, if you've lost a dream, if a dream of yours has died, or maybe you are dealing with chronic pain, And maybe what's chronic isn't physical pain, maybe it's a mental illness. But you know, whatever it is, you know that you don't just get a week to get over something. You know that the pain stays with you, doesn't it? You know that the sense of loss stays with you. So you can understand when we learn that Isaac had been grieving for his mother's death for three years. 
Now, the, the God of the Bible, and I want to say this to you because I think most people in this room, especially if you've lived long enough, you can relate to Isaac's grief in some way. I want to tell you here, we get a beautiful picture at the end of this account of Isaac and Rebekah coming together. You get this, this beautiful taste of the comfort of God, that the God of the Bible, the Christian God, does not dismiss your loss, does not dismiss or overlook your pain, but absolutely does comfort you in the midst of it. Without overlooking, without dismissing your pain, as the culture might do, the God of the Bible sees you and hears you and even mourns with you. Faith, the kind of faith we see Abraham and Sarah and now Isaac, their son, developing as they walk with this God, that type of faith sees all the ways of, of God's comfort, uh, all the ways that God offers comfort throughout our lives. Uh, those means of comfort have to be perceived by faith or you will miss them. And that's what we're going to look at today. I want to talk to you about the comfort that God designs for us and the comfort that God reveals to us. And finally, the comfort that God is to us. The comfort that he designs masterfully outside of our knowledge. The comfort that he reveals to us in our lives that we can perceive. And the comfort that he is to us. So the comfort that God designs is like, it's like a symphony. Forgive me, I'm, I'm a musician and so some of my illustrations go that way. God is like a master composer. And the kind of comfort that God designs in history, in our lives, it's like a symphony that's written by a master composer. There's all this purposeful harmony, uh, intentional, purposeful harmony that's taking place between all the musicians in the orchestra or the band. All the players are working together to achieve a beautiful harmony and actually the dissonance, the tonal dissonance, even is intentionally designed by the composer. Uh, to make something sound beautiful. Even the dissonance is designed by the composer to accomplish his purposes when you listen and when you look back and hear what the Creator is doing in people's lives and in history. So let's consider the players in the symphony. We're just going to focus on three today. Isaac, Rebecca, and Abraham's servant. Yeah, Abraham's part of the account. We're not, we've been talking about Abraham a lot, so we'll just put him put Abraham off to the side and just focus on Isaac, his son, and Rebecca, and Abraham's servant. Now, if you think about Isaac, he is Sarah's only true heir. He is Abraham and Sarah's true heir, and he's Sarah's only son. And as, and, and as you can understand, people who, uh, people who have children later in life sometimes can be tempted to be, I'll say this respectfully, a little protective a little, little coddling and doting, yeah? And so, uh, actually, Joyce Baldwin, who wrote a commentary on Genesis, she's a scholar, and she, she suggests that, that as Sarah's only son, born to him in her old age, the true heir, God's promise, the expression of God's promise to this family, uh, that Isaac was probably doting on a bit. Uh, and, and then she jokingly says, maybe that's why he's 40 years old and hasn't gotten married yet. 
As you think about it, I mean, if, if you are about to inherit a lot of stuff, right, and, and, and your mom's cooking breakfast for you every morning, why, why would you get married? That's, I was kind of joking about that. Um, anyway, it also explains why he's deeply grieved at losing his mother. This really is the only woman in his life, okay? So if he's 40 years old and is just getting married, it means that his mother is really the only, the only woman that really loves him. Four decades. And he grieves her for three years. Now you have Rebecca. This is a young woman who just seems eager to grow up. Uh, she, a marriage is being arranged and she willingly tells her family, I'll go, I'll do it. Here we go. Let's do this. Right? She finds out that a, a distant relative in a distant place over 400 miles away from her, a wealthy relative, is ready to marry somebody. And so she willingly gets up and she leaves with Abraham's servant and she travels to a place she's never been to, people she doesn't know. Um, and although she's, although she's really making out, I mean, the family is very excited. If you read Genesis chapter 24, her family is thrilled that a distant cousin uh, is, is, is willing to marry her. So she's excited. Um, at the same time, she's giving up a lot. She's giving up everything she knows, her home, her people. She's moving to a new place, and she's giving herself up to Isaac's family's way of life, which is what? They are resident aliens. They are displaced wanderers. If you read, look, Isaac's living in another place again. Every, every few years, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac were on the move and living somewhere else. They were always displaced despite the wealth that they had. And that's, that's the life that Rebecca agrees to. So here she is, a young girl in a new place with a, with a man she never knew, a family she doesn't know. And it says that Isaac loved her. And so you see here a mutual comforting taking place. Isaac is comforted because uh, having lost his mother, the only woman who ever cared for him, he now has Rebecca to care for him. And Rebecca is comforted in a strange place with a strange people because the man uh, that God brought her to loved her. But here's the thing. Abraham's servant highlights the main theme because it's really not a love story. There's, some, there's something going on here that you trace throughout the entire chapter, and here's what it is. And you see it in the servant. It might be Eliezer, the guy that Abraham mentions in Genesis chapter 15. doesn't say it. It could be him because this guy is in charge of base. Abraham trusts this guy. Um, so the servant says when he meets Rebecca and discovers, oh my goodness, this girl is the answer to my prayers. This girl is God's answer to, to my master Abraham's dilemma of getting ready to die and there's, there's no wife for his son, the true heir. And so the servant says, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. He would go on to say, once he met Rebecca's family, as he retold the story to her, uh, to her parents and to her brother Laban, uh, he said to them, God had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. You see here, the reason he's praising God and the reason he's so excited 
is because he sees the entire account is the direct result of God leading him every step of the way. The whole narrative of Genesis chapter 24 emphasizes the hand of God orchestrating circumstances, events, and people's actions to bring these two people together. And theologians call that providence. The word providence is a way of putting a label on what Abraham's servant is saying here. And the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines providence is like this. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So Isaac receives, receives comfort. Rebecca receives this opportunity to start a family and to have a new home and a future. But the master composer brought it all together. This is all by God's design. And that's really what the entire account is about. That's what the narrator is trying to help you see as you read, that God was orchestrating events before the death of Abraham, who's now a really old man, uh, to secure a wife and a family so that his son could continue the family line. Remember, it's this family through whom God is going to bless all of humanity. So the, the next threat was Abraham, late in his life, after his wife Sarah died, is, is, is looking at his son, who's 40 years old, thinking, I don't want him to marry, I don't want him to marry anybody from where I am. I want him to marry somebody from where I came from. But I don't want him to go back there because the promise has to do with the land in which we live. Abraham knew Isaac had to stay close, had to stay local. And that's why he sent the servant out. And by God's design, the servant found the woman of God's design. Now, now that, that is just a picture of how God comforts us by design. Now, the servant was fortunate enough to recognize that. Sometimes you see how God is working. Sometimes you don't. God doesn't reveal all of his ways to us. But he does reveal some of his ways to us. And it's faith that allows us to perceive the ways, the means by which God comforts us. So the, the comfort that God reveals, the comfort that God communicates to us, it can be seen as we consider three things. I want to talk about uh, three manifestations, right? three witnesses, three tangible witnesses of God's comfort in our lives if we are willing to see by faith God's word, God's providence, and God's people. The word of God reveals his character. The word of God tells us that that is God's revelation to us, communicating to us who God is. What is God's heart? What are God's priorities? What is he like? What does he love? What does he hate? What is he planning to do in the world? What is he planning to do throughout history? Where is everything, where is humanity going? And what's our purpose? We learn it from the Bible. As Psalm 119 says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You see here, the psalm writer 
treasuring God's word like it's his last flashlight camping in the woods. Right? He's down, he's down to his last flashlight, and his, he's got one flashlight, and he's down to his last couple of batteries. And God's word to him is like that lone flashlight in the woods, or like Galadriel said to Frodo when she gave him that precious gift, that file of light. This is a light to you when all other lights go out. When the ancients in the Bible wrote about the word of God, they wrote about it as though it were a light to them in a dark world when they had no other source of understanding and comprehension. The law of the Lord, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. We read that earlier, that God's word revives our soul. There is a restorative power to the word of God. There is a healing power. There is a rehabilitating power to the word of God for your soul. For the way you think, for how you process the events of your life, how you process what you read about and see in the news and in the world and in current events. It has a restorative, rehabilitating power. Now look, if you're, if you're a student... So it's finals week, right? And if you're in high school, it's coming. It's less than a month away for you. Um, you. You come to church, you hear the word of God, you talk to other followers of God, and you share ideas and you help and encourage one another. I understand that none of this is helping you in your exams tomorrow. Uh, in an academic sense, right? We're not learning about the laws of physics this morning. We're not learning about 19th century English literature. Right? We're, we're not learning about human biology right now. So, so we can't, we're not tutoring you for your final exams and for your final papers. And yet, and yet, the Word of God, which is restorative, which is illuminating, the Word of God can give you the peace that you need to get through the next several tests and papers without losing your mind, like everybody else is on campus. The Word of God gives you a desire and an encouragement to do all that you can with excellence, to learn with excellence, to study with excellence, to take your tests honestly, with integrity, without cheating. Because God has given you everything and you represent Him in the world and on your campus and with your, your classmates and your professors. The Word of God tells you who you are. It shows you your identity so that whether you pass or whether you fail, you do not identify yourself based on that. But the love of God identifies who you are. So as a matter of fact, it is the word of God that guides us to have the right footing, the right foundation for all of our endeavors. Endeavors. Not only the Word of God, but this is the, an important thing that we discover when we read the Word of God and it illuminates our minds. We discover His providence, which is the second thing uh, that I want to talk about. Proverbs 16 says that in his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. See, God directs not only the course of your families as they grow and develop and mature. And God not only directs the course of your education, the course of your career. God directs your suffering also. God directs the trials, the adversity that you face masterfully. 
so that regardless of what you do and regardless of what you say and regardless of whether your plans are spot on or whether your plans are really misguided, God is directing your steps by his providence. Friends of ours uh, over a decade ago uh, lost their only daughter uh, before she was a year old. Uh, Their second child and only daughter uh, lost her suddenly and tragically uh, before her first birthday. And their grief was tremendous, and we grieved with them, and we watched them, the entire congregation of that church where, I, where we were, grieved with, with this family. Uh, and, and as they grieved, the, the husband would say to me, it is only because of the sovereignty of God, which I believe is closely related to his providence, but it's only the sovereignty of God that is keeping me sane right now. I don't know why God took my daughter. I don't know why he took her the way he did, but I know he has his reasons. And the only thing getting me out of bed, despite my terrible grief, is knowing that this is part of God's plan. And that kept the family going. God's word encourages us to see our trials through the lens of his providence. You know when you're struggling, when you're suffering? I'll give you another Lord of the Rings illustration. Remember how Frodo, towards the end of his journey, all he could see was the ring. Everything he saw, he, he would say, it's like every waking minute, I, all I can see is this horrible burden that's weighing me down. That's all, I've lost all perspective. All I can see is this terrible weight that I'm carrying and grief. And chronic pain and illness feels like that, doesn't it? It's like a lens. It's like everything you see is through the lens of your pain. Everything you see is through the lens of your grief. And it's overwhelming. But the Word of God helps you see providence. That whatever is happening, it has not escaped God's sight. That it is very much part of the fabric of the cloth, the the. the It is part of the fabric that God is weaving into the story of history, which includes the story of our lives. And as we read God's word, we become aware of his providence, just like Abraham's servant did as he looked at the circumstances in his life. And we're able to say whatever is going on, even if we can't explain it, we know, we know that the hand of God is directing our course. And and the lens changes. We still grieve. You still have chronic pain, but you have a new lens now. The lens is God in his sovereignty, by his providence, is working and managing all things for his glory and for my good. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in Romans 8, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So you have the word of God revealing to you the providence of God. And that gives you a new lens through which you look at your life, even your struggles. And that changes your perspective. And when your perspective changes, you're able to encourage one another. And this is where God's people come into play. God's people can help each other look at life that way. When you forget that God's in it, somebody else can remind you, hey, God is in this. God is present and God is working even though you don't realize it. And that's what, that was Paul's point in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We read it earlier today. Blessed be, he said, blessed be God. And he called God the father of mercies and God of all comfort. 
Now listen to this. The God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God comforts you in your struggle as you perceive the events of your life from his perspective, from his providential perspective. And now you have something to offer to somebody else who's going to go through the same thing a year from now or the same thing 10 years from now. You're going to say, I know what you're going through because I went through that very thing and here's how God comforted me. And now you offer that to that other person and now they are comforted. But here's the catch and Paul's saying it. They're not comforted because of you. They're comforted because of God. God's still the provider of the comfort. You're the vehicle. You're the messenger. Uh, That's why sometimes we get so disenfranchised when people let us down, right? Because we expect them to be our comfort. And that's clearly not what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, God is still the source of comfort. But as he comforts us, we then take that comfort and offer it to one another. One year after that friend of ours who lost his daughter, lost their daughter, I lost my brother. And it was God's comfort to me to watch them suffer in grief because that witness was the only thing that allowed me to get up out of bed uh, when, when I was in the process of losing my only sibling. Seeing how God comforted them directly comforted me. And I have no doubt uh, that God in his infinite wisdom providentially worked circumstances in such a way in their lives and in our lives that we were able to comfort one another in a time in both of our lives when we most needed it. And I'll give you one other great example because sometimes the comfort that God provides for us is, is, is friend to friend, right? Or sibling to sibling. It may be a personal or private nature, but sometimes the comfort, the comfort is corporate. It, 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 it just goes through the entire community as the community gathers and has a sense of, of corporate identity. Here's an example. In, in our last church, we had an evening, a weekly evening worship service. And it was something uh, that, that I helped lead uh, with a team of folks. And the, the, one of the features of our evening worship service was public testimonies public stories of faith. People were encouraged to come uh, and share their testimony, share their story of faith. Uh, and and people, some, people are sometimes petrified of doing that. We only had a handful of people do it every year. But when they shared their testimonies, it was powerful. And I don't mean they were amazing public speakers. It was powerful to, for me as a pastor to see how God used an individual's test, public testimony to speak directly to the needs of people who were there in the congregation. There was a young woman, a young mom, who shared her testimony of faith. And part of her testimony is that when she was a teenager, uh, she was abused by a leader in her church who wouldn't admit it. And she shared how God, as a teenager, gave her the faith and the mercy to be able to forgive that man in her heart regardless of what his position on the situation was she shared in front of a group of people how God helped her forgive that man in her heart shortly after that an older woman came up to me new, brand new believer and she said to me who was that I really need to talk to her 
uh, because her husband, her ex-husband, I should say, uh, was in prison. And she said to me, I have never been able to forgive him for what he did to my children years ago. And she said, I want to meet that person. So I put these two women in touch with one another. And they talked. And as a result of their conversation, the older woman was able to write a letter of forgiveness to her ex-husband who was still in prison. And I saw, I saw this woman begin to heal as God gave her a new perspective on her pain. And God gave that to her as she heard a young woman talk about how she was able to, be, to forgive somebody who hurt her. That is how God's comfort works in a faith community. As we comfort each other with the comfort with which God has comforted us. So, so the word of God helps us interpret circumstances by providence. And providence gives us, as God's people, the, the perspective we need to comfort others who suffer in similar ways. This is the comfort that God reveals. Despite what his unsearchable plans are, from our limited, finite perspective, this is the comfort that God reveals to us in this blessed but difficult life. I want you to be careful where you look for comfort. Be careful where you seek your comfort, whether it's in people, whether it's in substances, whether it's in an idea or a dream, a goal. Be careful where you find your comfort. We do comfort each other. Just, you know, look, there is a very simple fact that Isaac got married and the marriage to Rebecca was, was a comfort to him right then and there, but they wouldn't comfort each other all the time or forever. Keep reading Genesis. Yeah? The comfort is still God. He's the source of the comfort, not, not people. Read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Fascinating to see how people, how people find comfort in other people and, and never truly learn how to detach themselves. Uh, they, they develop a codependency like a drug on finding comfort in other people. And when God and when they when those people go away, there goes your comfort. And in the great divorce you discover through C.S. Lewis's really neat fantasy story uh, that God is always trying to help us see, as Abraham finally saw when he basically had to give up Isaac, God wants us to see that He's our only source of comfort. People are the means of food and clothing and birthday parties, you know, and a, and, and a raise or a new job or a wife or a husband or, or a new friend. These are all great things and great people and they are the means, but they're not the source. And that is what Isaac and Rebecca would have to discover as they grew older together was God alone was the source of their comfort. I don't, I don't know why God has orchestrated the losses that you've dealt with. I don't know why God has orchestrated that you should have the kind of pain you have. That you should have the cross to bear that you carry. I, I don't, but I do know this. I'm sure that he wants you in it. 
He wants you to find your comfort in Him. He wants you to reach out and seek Him alone, not the thing, not the person, but Him alone for your comfort. The comfort that God is, you you can't match it. The comfort that God is to us cannot be outmatched. In Isaiah 61, we read the words of God's servant, the Messiah, who would come. And, and it said this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And Jesus, when Jesus came around many, many centuries later, Jesus said, this was about me. So imagine Jesus saying this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He has sent me to comfort those who mourn, to comfort all who mourn. So you see here in Jesus that Let's go back to what I was saying earlier, the word of God, the providence of God, and the people of God, right? How it reveals God's comfort to us. Think about Jesus. Jesus is the word of God, right? The word, Jesus is the greatest manifestation and picture of who God is. You want to know who God is? Read the Bible. You want to really know who God's, God is? Read the, look at the living word. Learn from the living word who is Jesus. So in Jesus, the word of God by the providence of God through history became a human being to become our comfort. The source of comfort became a human being like all of us and suffered without any comfort. The Gospels, the the histories of Jesus' life tell us that the night before he was executed, he sweat so profusely and he was so uh, psychologically distraught that he bled, that he sweat blood. About to be separated, not only die a horrible, shameful death, but be separated from the perfect presence with God the Father and God the Spirit that he knew from all eternity. And in that moment, Jesus lost all options for comfort in this world to become your comfort, to become God's source of direct comfort to you. And this is why, because he suffered. Because he knows exactly what you've been through. That's why he's the perfect comforter. Because when you struggle, Jesus listens. You ever have somebody, like, you're trying to talk to them about what you're going through, and they don't know how to listen, or they don't want to listen, or they keep interjecting, or they keep trying to give you wisdom and pat answers and pat theology, or they try and solve the problem, and you're ready to punch them in the face? Why are you ready to punch them in the face? Because they're not listening to you. Because they want to fix it. They don't want to listen. They don't want to just sit down with you and weep with you. They don't want to just sit and listen to your pain. When that's really what you need most of the time. There are moments of truth where you need to hear the truth. But quite often when you're suffering, you need someone who can comfort you by being there and sitting with you in your grief and listening and saying, I know. Jesus says, Jesus weeps with you when you weep. The Bible tells us he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That is why he is the only qualified comforter. When we comfort one another, it is in his name. It is by his truth. It is with his power and his strength and in his wisdom. It's not us. I have nothing to say to you. I have nothing to say to you. I can say everything to you that the Lord Jesus has shown me in my life. And that's how we receive comfort. It's still through Jesus Christ. But now there's a corporate aspect to it 
as we comfort one another. And that's what Paul was saying. As he was saying, hey, we comfort each other with the comfort that God gives us when we're struggling. He goes on to say, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Because by faith, when you give your life to Jesus, when you follow Jesus, we all now say, ah, we are suffering in unity. We are suffering because our Lord Jesus, our master suffered. And servants aren't greater than their master. Jesus suffered. We are suffering in his name. But that means that we are comforted in his name. And so we share in each other's sufferings, but we also share as God comforts each individual. We all share in that comfort. That's why Paul can say, when, you rejo- when one person rejoices, you all rejoice with that person. When one person suffers, you all suffer with that person. You carry one another's burdens. There is another way in which Jesus is unlike anybody else. Jesus will absolutely end your grief. See, I can listen to you and relate to you and comfort you in the name of Jesus, but I really can't. I can't stop the pain. I can't end your grief, but Jesus can, and he does, and he will. Because your grief and your pain may not be over, in this lifetime but it absolutely will be over and that is the Christian message that Jesus rose from the dead and we are going to rise from the dead also and the Bible preaches not only reconciliation with God but restoration restoration of your body of your soul along with all of creation so John could say in Revelation chapter 21 when he was in the presence of God, had this amazing vision of what things w- of, of things that would come. He said this, Behold, he heard the voice of God from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be, them, with, will be with them as their God. You see, let me stop for a second. You see how the goal isn't, isn't you, get, you get the grand prize? You get the guy, you get the girl, you get the perfect job. You get the new car, the new boat. No. What is the goal of history? What is the source of our comfort? That we get God. We get God. And Isaac will begin to learn what his father Abraham had to learn when he, when he basically had to give his son up. That you get God. That's the goal of your life. That you will finally want him. That you will want his son Jesus more than anything you're seeking after. I don't care how good it is. And so Paul, uh, John went on to say, this is what I heard. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And so in your discomfort, in your struggle, remember that Jesus hears you and weeps with you and says, I know. And he has the power. He has the power to heal you. And he will. And he's saying to you, let it be me. Let your joy, let your comfort be me. Faith sees that God's ways, although they may be unsearchable to us, are tangible with eyes of faith 
with eyes of faith, you can perceive the means of God's comfort in your life, even in your darkest hours. So let's be mindful as individuals, but but as brothers and sisters, as fathers and, and mothers in Christ, let's be mindful of all the ways that God has comforted us throughout our lives. You may have forgotten something that he did 10 years ago, but somebody sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you may need to hear that very thing that you don't think about anymore. But if you're listening, if you're listening, you'll then finally have something to say. So let's be mindful of the word of God showing us who he is, that he is sovereign and in his providence, he directs all events, even our suffering. And through the lens of his providence, let us encourage one another with the comfort that God has given to us. And that's what Christian fellowship is. Let's pray. Our God of all comfort, we ask that you would comfort us through your word. We ask that through your word, you would give us eyes of faith to see what you have done in the world and what you have done in our lives so that we in faith may encourage each other. Father, thank you that if we are willing to look, your mercies are new. Uh, Although we have uh, serious nights of grieving, uh, that that with the morning uh, comes joy and laughter and singing. And and Father, some of us uh, are enduring night times that may only last a day or two. Some of us are in a night phase of mourning that seems to have been going on for months or maybe years. Uh, Lord, help us to take heart in your son that he is returning to make all things right uh, and that we will be whole again. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, our true comfort.